Virgil, that's a funny name for a boy that comes from Philadelphia. What do they call you up there? They call me Mr. Tibbs. You brought me into this world. And from that day, you owed me everything you could ever do for me, like I will owe my son if I ever have another. But you don't own me. You and your whole lousy generation believes the way it was for you is the way it's got to be. I accept this award in memory of all the African-American actors and actresses who went before me in the difficult years, on whose shoulders I was privileged to stand to see where I might go. Sticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing the world of classic cinema. I'm Samantha, and of course, as always, I'm here with Kristen and Kim. Today we have a very special episode. We were just talking about the sexiest classic film stars, not knowing that one of the sexiest would leave us so soon. We have lost the great Sidney Poitier one of my personal favorites, and I know that we would all be remiss if we did not do him justice with an episode in his honor. Today we're doing a top three, and we're going to get a nice sample of Sidney Poitier films for you guys to hopefully check out. And I'm going to open this up with a question. I really want to know what all of our backgrounds are with Sidney Poitier. How did you get into him? When did you get into him? What was your first film that made you fall in love with him? Let's start off with you, Kristen. For me, it's interesting. Before I get into background, I just wanted to discuss kind of the power of Sidney Poitier's passing, which was something that I think talked about losing classic film stars. It's a necessary evil of the work that we do. We know it's going to happen, but we also don't want to think about it. And especially losing Betty White so quickly as well. It's just, it's been a lot in the first two months of this year. And when I was talking about Sidney Poitier on social media after his death, I had recommended a film that might show up on this top three. And to see how many people shared it, talked about how they had never seen it, but they wanted to see it how much Sidney Poitier meant to them as an actor, as a performer. I mean, it just shows not only why we do this show in terms of helping people find classic films, but also the power of these stars that transcends us talking about them. But for me to get back to your question, Sidney Poitier was one where I first became aware of him through... Rugrats, the animated series. There is a joke in that what? one of those episodes where Dee Dee asks Stu, guess who's coming to dinner? And he says, Sidney Poitier. And it is completely going to go over the head of the target audience watching Rugrats in the 90s. But it was the first time I'd ever heard that. And I had no, again, no basis in what the joke was. But it's probably the first time I'd ever heard his name. And now that joke does nothing but make me smile and say that Rugrats, again, is the most intelligent show if you are a person interested in classic film or history, because they did a lot of weird, obscure references. But in terms of the first Sidney Poitier movie I saw, I took a film class in high school back when electives in high school actually were something you wanted to do. We did a double feature of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and A Patch of Blue. And I was just struck by Sidney Poitier, not just as a performer, but as a Black performer. Because I think a lot of people getting into classic film assume the caveat that, oh, classic film era was racist. There were no Black performers. And that is true to an extent. And I think Sidney Poitier broke so many barriers, but Also, he laid the groundwork for so many of the actors that we see today. We wouldn't have a Denzel Washington or a Will Smith or any of those actors without Sidney Poitier. And I think for a lot of people to say this time period of movies is racist, yes, that's true, but it's a yes, but situation. To watch Sidney Poitier's movies, he wasn't just playing a character that, yes, a lot of white people could feel comfortable with him. He always played intelligent, articulate men. 
And that made a white audience comfortable. Yes, there's an element of profiling there. But at the same time, he was just by existing, just by playing those articulate, smart doctors and police officers and confronting racism. I mean, Paris Blues, he's talking about how, yes, even though Europe has their own racism problem, about how he felt differently in Europe than in the US. I mean, he was talking about the stuff that we didn't want to talk about in the 1960s. So for me, I think seeing his movies upended a lot of the preconceived notions I had about old films, but also just showed me what a damn good actor can do. You know, how intimidating he was, how romantic he could be, how dramatic he could be. I mean, he could literally play any genre and it works. And it's still just as fresh today. Some performers, you can watch them and they're indicative of their era. I'm going to say Samantha's favorite, Norma Shearer. Norma Shearer feels very 30s. That's but a Sid- fair statement. I'll accept that. <laughs> but Sidney Poitier is timeless. You could watch any of his movies and think that you're watching somebody from a month ago who is a performer today. So my very long-winded answer to your question. I couldn't agree more. Honestly, I don't want to spoil too much of my top three. I'll definitely get into my discovery of Sidney Poitier when I talk about probably my number one. But I very distinctly remember having a debate with my English teacher in high school. She really gave me a different perspective on Sidney Poitier. And she said something very profound that I won't forget. I remember telling her how much of a fan of his that I was. And I said, you know, In spite of all of this adversity, he was such an amazing star. And she sort of brought up at the time to me, do you think he would have been a star back then if he wasn't so perfect, if he wasn't so educated, if he wasn't so articulate? And that really made me stop and think. Back then, a lot of white actors, you didn't have to be the smartest person in the room. You didn't have to be the most well-dressed person in the room or the most intelligent to be a star. Take Rod Steiger, for example. (laughs) He's the first person I can think of, you know, who starred opposite him a lot. And Sidney Poitier was. He was just immaculate. He was the Cary Grant, (laughs) basically. And because of that, as you sort of touched on, white audiences were okay with him and accepted him to a degree. (laughs) You know, they didn't even fully accept him. So I think that's just something so powerful that he had to be as perfect as he was to even succeed. What about you, Kim? What are your thoughts? I don't know how I could follow that any more eloquently, what either of you said. I completely agree. I come at this as the newbie, honestly, to his work. I do admit wholeheartedly prior to I've seen... 10 of his movies, thinking about it, and seven of those have been this month since his passing. I've scratched off a lot of first-time watches that I haven't seen, a lot of films that I've meant to get to and never have for really no reason. I feel like he's a star who was always there. He's always been at the forefront. I could point to his face. I could tell you why he was so respected. I remember that Oscars where Denzel Washington says, I'll always be following you, Sydney," And that's so poignant right there. But for some reason, I never ticked him off. Over the last month, I've been doing a lot of watching and putting some things together and interested to dive in and talk about this. I can say the three that I've seen prior to this month, I, at least two of them I probably will talk about. But I will say one was for a research project. I think and the other one was for a crush on another performer in there. I was a young kid ticking them off, but there's I a lot of I think I can already there. guess what your crush one is. <laughs> they, worked, they worked together a couple times. <laughs> We're going to have to talk about that. But I think just again, sort of tying back to what Kristen was saying, I think that's what's so powerful about Sidney Poitier and his effect on audiences. That someone who is already a fan of classic film can stumble upon his work now and connect with it. I think that's just so amazing. And I'm so happy and glad that people are still discovering him and talking about him. Because as I literally said on Twitter after he passed, to me, the world owes a debt to Sidney Poitier that we can never repay. What he did for cinema, what he did for the world, basically. Like, I don't think that his impact could be overstated. So I'm so happy we're paying tribute to him. 
Before we get into it, here is a short little ad for our Patreon. If you are a fan of old Hollywood, classic entertainment, and the joy of pop culture history in all its forms, please subscribe to our Patreon page like these wonderful people. Christine Meyer, Danny, David Floyd, Jacob Haller, MCF, and Rachel Kramarchuk. Our Patreon website is located at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. Be sure to take a look at our other channels as well. We're on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz, as well as YouTube and Instagram. Keep an eye out for lots of bonus content coming soon. Now, back to the show. So we all agreed. We all have different Sydney Poitier movies, but some of us have the same. So as we did, similar with our Gene Kelly we have a code phrase. If somebody has a movie higher up on their list, we will talk about it when we get to the highest one on the list. Now, the Gene Kelly episode, our code phrase was Makoko. Appropriately so. We will be saying for this episode, if somebody has something higher, the code word is Mr. Tibbs. So where do we want to start? Let's Samantha. Samantha, you are the one I know with the deepest connection. What is your number three? Well, I went into this with the expectation slash hope that my number three will be Mr. Tibbs, but my number three is Guess Who's Coming to Dinner from 1967. Mr. I will wait. There we go. Okay. So I'll wait. Let's hop over to Kim now. (laughs) Well, it was a really short Mr. Tibbs because my my number three was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner as well. Okay. You guys can both talk about it. That's that's kind of what I figured. I will say Guess Who's Coming to Dinner did not make my three, but I knew it would be represented in other areas. So I'm excited to talk about it as well. But Kim, give us the rundown on Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and what you love about it. Well, I first time watched this like two weeks ago. This was one of those ones that I knew about, like from my binging all the AFI movies. It was like, I need to get to this. I need to get to this and just skipped it, skipped it, skipped it. And last week it was like, okay, now's the time I'm going to do this. And I won't lie. I went into it with a bit of trepidation. I had heard a lot of people talking about, oh, how dated parts of it were and just the dated connotations of it. I cried. The last act, really, I was crying. I was a mess. And just so much going on. And I can't even, thinking about it here, but barely put words into my mouth. But his performance in that film just struck me. The layer, and I mean, we'll get into this another, actually both films I'm talking about. Presence. Presence in his... Ability to be so many layers because we talk about how he's an actor who makes white audiences comfortable. But at the same time, in these performances, I felt like he's making you acknowledge the history. He's making you acknowledge the racism. He's making you aware of everything he's faced. He might be sparkling and pretty and gorgeous in that suit. Him and the actress's name playing his fiance is completely escaping me. And they are so perfect together. And everything there is so sparkly, clean, and gorgeous. But there's an emotionality to his performance and a pain in his portrayal. And I think it comes through in each of these works. And it won me over from the ground up. That's why this one is number three, because the other two actually got to me more in different ways. But it was really an interesting watch for a first time. This was one of my first TCM film festival films. I remember going to see this. Catherine Houghton did the intro. And that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, that's so lucky. It was great. And I remember her saying when we saw it that director Stanley Kramer made a movie for the fence sitters. So it does get a lot of flack for pretty much preaching to the choir in terms of coming out in 1967, being more of people who already were not necessarily opposed to the civil rights movement, but maybe just hadn't made it declarative. It's not a film that unfortunately was going to change people that were virulently racist. But the story of a Black doctor and a white woman wanting to get married and the struggles of dealing with 
the family pressure in 1967, I was doing some research, you know, it had just been a couple months since the loving decision came out when this movie did, which was the move that struck down the anti-miscegenation laws. So, you know, a couple of years before this, this relationship would be perceived as illegal. And it was a huge shock when it came out to see this type of interracial relationship. And, and I know a lot of people, I love Catherine Hepburn. I love Spencer Tracy. I know the story about this was his last film. But I always am drawn back to John Prentice, Sidney Poitier's character, who tells this girl from the beginning, this is not going to be how you expect. And it's one of the first instances I think I can say of seeing white privilege on screen because she just blithely goes around being like, oh, my parents are progressive. They're going to love you. And it's just like, no, girl, stop. He has a great speech with his dad, played by Roy Glenn, what could be a minor role, where he talks about, you see yourself as a Black man. I see myself as a man. And I think that that was always the Sidney Poitier through line which again, there's a lot of back and forth. You know, I know James Baldwin has written a lot about Sidney Poitier as a performer, which was that trying to erase race. Don't see him as a black man, just see him as a man. But at the same time, what does that do to a generation of black men who their race was paramount, that it couldn't be unseen by society? It's such a complex movie, but at the same time, it's a love story and he's so romantic and you're just like, what girl's parents wouldn't want their daughter to marry this man? Like, he's got his stuff together. He's got goals. He's got ambition. If you don't want him, I'll take him. I couldn't agree more. Kristen really hit the nail on the head with why I love this movie. And that scene in particular just hits me so hard every time I watch it. That scene is what really seals the deal for me when it comes to Sidney Poitier in this film. I mean, it's truly a team effort because... I wouldn't even call myself a huge fan of Hepburn and Tracy, but they are fantastic in this film as well. And we can't go without mentioning them and their really powerful performances. But it's just that scene that really, really does it for me. And Sydney really, I kind of agree. He tiptoed the line between trying to dissolve that veil between this is a Black character or this is just a character. But at the same time, it is like basically all his movies through the 60s, at least, it's really hard to describe the plot of the film without pointing out that his character is Black. Like you can't describe the plot of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner without that point. So I think that is a really important thing that we shouldn't necessarily diminish. But obviously they still had a lot of work to do, but this movie is so important too, I feel like. It should really be included in these conversations. It should. I haven't seen the 2005 remake of this movie that I know they did. Yeah. Race swapped. (laughs) And made it the story of a white man marrying into a Black family, which again, if you hear that plot line based off of the plot line of this movie and you think, that sounds like a good idea, uh, just reminding myself of its existence makes me think like, I would love to know the people behind that who thought that that would be a good decision. Is that a remake? It sounds like it would be a zany comedy. It's considered a loose remake of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. So I have, Does again, have I have like Ashton Kutcher in it. Yes, it had Ashton Kutcher and Bernie Mac. Wow, it, I forgot of this movie's existence. Yeah, well, I, I mean, here's the thing. If we get a, a, like 100 patrons, maybe we'll talk about it one day as a double feature. Until then, we're just going to forget of its existence again. So I will say one more thing on Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. I do not consider myself a Spencer Tracy fan. I never really particularly have. I have never liked him. I've never respected him as much as I did in this film. He moved me to a point in this film, especially at the end, that he has never done before. I have never reached a level with his performance as I did in this film. And that was a mind-blowing experience for me. I would definitely agree. I feel like we could go on a whole other tangent about Spencer Tracy. One of the things I do have to say, whether I like him or not, he was one of the more natural actors of the era. And I think that it really shines through in this performance specifically. And it gives you sort of the other side of the coin, I think, that the foil to Poitier that we really need to make this plot work. And yeah, he's fantastic. He's basically Carl Fredrickson in this movie. (laughs) 
my number three was not Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. My number three is actually the movie that was on my new discoveries list. And Ooh. it's Paris Blues from 1965. Mr. Now I know. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh my goodness. Then I will. I will with all the Mr. Tibbs. I will keep that under my hat. I will say there's a reason it's number three for me as opposed to Irish. So it'll be interesting to see how high Kim ranked it. So. Yeah, I'm definitely curious too. Hopping over to my number two, then I don't think it's going to be on either of your lists. <laughs> But it holds a very, very special place in my heart. So my number two is The Slender Thread from 1965. And I don't know if either of you have seen it, but if I had to recommend a film from my list, I would have to recommend this one. We talk about how impactful Sidney Poitier's films are. This one is so impactful and not for the reasons that a lot of his other films are. We, again, talked about how... Sidney Poitier had certain characters where you don't think of them as a Black man, you think of them as a man. And I think this is perfectly one of those. And I think that's why it's, that for many other reasons is so ahead of its time. It's about a suicide hotline operator and he gets a call from a woman who has just taken an overdose of pills and the whole film is basically him trying to talk to her to find out her location as she sort of lapses into unconsciousness and tells the story of her life and how she got to this point point. and the woman's played by Anne Bancroft and she does a fantastic job it really dives into like her whole background and all of her relationships with her husband and everything and Cindy Poitier again is just so powerful he really commands the screen as this suicide hotline operator. And it really shines a light on mental health that not a lot of other films did at the time. And again, none of the plot has to do with his race. He's just a damn good actor in a damn good film. And I think that it's just fantastic. I couldn't recommend it enough. It's not usually brought into the conversations when we talk about Sidney Poitier's work, but I think it definitely should be. It's definitely a favorite of mine. And the fact that Anne Bancroft gave him his Oscar too. They have like a cute little relationship. I love it. They're really good together, even though they don't necessarily share the screen. I don't know how I could follow that. That sounds like a fascinating watch. That's one I have not watched. I actually don't think I've heard of it, but that sounds like that's a truly captivating description. And I'd definitely be interested in checking that one out. I don't know if it's streaming. I wish it were, but it, it it's will definitely be playing at the festival this year. Is it really? I thought I heard about that. That's right. Yeah. If you guys go to the festival, just saying, definitely check that one out. I think if I were going to the festival this year, unfortunately I am not, but if I were, I would definitely be going to that because it's just such a good film. And I would love to see an entire audience react to it as I did, because I'm sure a lot of the crowd will be a first time watch. So I think that's so fantastic that it's on the lineup. I remember that now that you mention it. So Kim, number two. Number two, No Way Out. I actually, as I've been sitting here, I'm switching around my list some, but this is one that I watched again in the last week. And this is one I was always scared to watch because I knew the plot and we all know how I feel about Richard Widmark. And honestly, I was not necessarily ready to watch Richard Widmark in that part. And jumping into this film and watching it through, I was amazed at, this was such a visceral, challenging, this was not an easy sit. It was not an easy sit at all, a very uncomfortable film. But that is really what struck me. And again, like I touched on in my Guess Who's Coming to Dinner discussion, what Poitier was able to do with his presence and presenting this doctor, this young together, he's just, he's a normal struggling doctor who just happens to be black. But this film presents the racial element in such a fascinating way. And it really, as early as 1950, when we know how racist Hollywood was, 
they twist it to make sure you're firmly in his camp. And he is so perfect opposite Widmark, who I've never seen Widmark reach those levels before. It's an iconic performance from Widmark in completely different ways. But there's so much going on in that film and such an uncomfortable treatment of racism in noir. This is noir. This is race. This is tons going on. And it was a truly interesting viewing. I have not seen that one yet, actually. I may have seen pieces of it, but I definitely need to see it beginning to end it, all the way through. It's his first film, right? He comes out of the Pretty game early. swinging. Yeah. I mean, I was stunned that it was his first film because his presence is just so... He's there. He comes on screen and it's just like, boom. You know he's a star and he's got everything about him. It was just flawless. I've seen screenshots of him in that film. I know for sure. And just, it boggles my mind. The fact that five years after that, he plays a high schooler. So if you think five years after that, he plays a high schooler, he is a baby playing a doctor in this movie. So Blackboard I definitely jungle, my it. first Sydney Poitier movie. It's shocking to think that when he started in the business, he was in his early twenties playing adults and I think there's also some interesting racial commentary that we won't get into right now about the fact that he always played characters of indeterminate age that were either far older than he was or younger than he was so it's interesting that's what I need to see I want to see that one they didn't know what to do with him they didn't appreciate him (laughs) you know exactly that's the motto of this episode they didn't know what to do with him they didn't appreciate him Yes. So my number two, I'll be interested to see if Samantha says anything about this one, is 1965's A Patch of Blue. Mr. Tim. I knew She knew. She knew. (laughs) I'm so glad we'll be talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's no secret to anyone who knows me, or if you've listened to the episode that we did on A Patch of Blue, that A Patch of Blue is my Sydney Poitier film. I meant to say my favorite, but it's just my Sydney Poitier film. So, Samantha, does that bring us back to you? Yes, that works out because my number one is A Patch of Blue from 1965. That's too funny. I couldn't say enough great things about A Patch of Blue. It's my comfort film when it comes to Sydney Poitier, which is kind of strange because it's really dark. But I will tell a little story. It sort of ties back to my initial question of how I got into Sydney Poitier. Basically, I had a library sort of across town from where I lived when I was just starting to get into classic film. And I just rented this out of the blue and I absolutely fell in love with it. And during high school, during my sophomore year, I was the creator of the high school's classic film club. I noticed that there wasn't one at my high school. I'm like, I'm going to make one. So I did. And I only had like two people ever show up. And I showed all kinds of weird things. It was basically a dictatorship. I chose (laughs) everything that we watched. I believe we watched A Patch of Blue, Marie Antoinette, the Norma Shearer one, and Rebel Without a Cause, and maybe a couple of others. You watched A Patch of Blue in high school. In high school, sophomore year, I dictated. At the school. That's At the school. Impressive. And this was, we had like a teacher sponsor too. So she was totally fine with it. <laughs> I literally watched this movie for the first time today, right before <gasps> we amazing. watched. Oh, and so happy. I, I'm glad you, Abby, we can, you could go ahead and finish your story. But yeah, that's amazes me. Yeah, it's definitely dark. That's why I'm saying it's so strange that it's like my comfort film when it comes to Sydney Poitier's work, but it is. And at the end of the year, we did a vote on what our favorite movie that we saw was. And every single person voted for A Patch of Blue. And that made my heart happy. And I still think about that to this day. I wrote Sydney Poitier a letter in, I believe, 2015, just this super gushy fan letter telling him how much I adored him and his impact on cinema. And I told him that story. I don't think he ever read it, but I hope that he did. I'm about to get emotional. But yeah, I absolutely love this film. The ending is just beautiful. I could watch that ending over and over. Again, it's one of those movies that's hard to describe the plot without mentioning race. But I think he's so human. And it's such a special human relationship. 
that I just can't take my eyes off the screen for a minute. I'm more curious to hear about what your guys' reactions are, (laughs) because I talked about this nonstop for an hour when we did the episode. So I want to hear your thoughts more than mine. Yeah, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, Apache Blue was one of the first films that I saw of his. And it was also probably one of the earliest depictions of any type of disability that I had seen on screen. Because the movie, in case you didn't listen to the episode that we did, is about a blind woman played by Elizabeth Hartman who meets a man named Gordon, played by Sidney Poitier in the park. And they develop this friendship. He doesn't necessarily look down on her for being blind. And she doesn't know that he's a Black man. So they have this really great intimate relationship where he helps her become an independent person, not in a way that's infantilizing or anything like that, but just nobody's taught this girl how to live independently because they don't want her to. They want, you know, her mother, played by Shelley Winters, wants her to be dependent so that she can't leave. So it's a very unique look at disability, I think, in that regard, too. It's directed by Guy Green, who, if you don't know, did the film adaptation of A Light in the Piazza, which has the late, great Yvette Mimieux, who also we lost over the last couple of weeks. And that's also another very unique portrayal of mental disability that I think is also really sensitively portrayed. And I think what I love about this movie outside of the narrative is that you know, yes, it's very much a love is literally blind narrative. Yes, it's very reductive in that regard. But I think what I appreciate is, is that the way Sidney Poitier plays Gordon is, again, he doesn't see this girl as something to pity, as something to take care of, as someone that he needs to protect. It's this girl that society has deemed lowly, that her own family doesn't necessarily see as a person. And he wants to at least pay that concept forward and show her things like how to get from A to B without help, how to go to the grocery store, how to effectively live a life that nobody has given her the opportunity to do. And Yes, does that kind of diminish Sidney Poitier's character a little bit in terms of being the helper in this movie? You know, it is Elizabeth Hartman's film, I would say, more than his. But at the same time, I think that if it was any other actor, it would be more of a let me guide you, let me take care of you, let me protect you, as opposed to we're going to approach this life as equals. And I think that very small distinction in acting technique is what makes the entire difference in the movie. I couldn't agree more. It occurs to me more and more the more times I watch this movie is the fact that he is educated and she is not. And I think that's a dynamic that we don't see a lot in film either. And I love that we're able to have these conversations too, because Kristen, if you hadn't brought up the disability aspect and what she faces and how this is portrayed as opposed to other films that address disability I wouldn't have even really noticed, to be honest with you. That's not the aspect of this film that I would have focused on. Exactly, yeah. But I love that you bring that to my attention and I look at this movie differently when I watch it after hearing from you, like we did during the episode. It's why I don't ever say that race and disability are similar experiences. They are analogous experiences that I've talked to critics in the industry of color who have said, You're talking about the same things that we've been talking about as critics of color. Our experiences are not the same because as a white passing woman who is disabled, my experience is not at all the same as a black disabled person, but we are still championing the same issues and talking about the same BS that you would think would be solved. And I think that this movie is a really good example of that without making it feel saccharine or preachy, which again, could have easily happened. This film has a long history in my family. It goes back to my grandmother took my father to see this film in 1965 when it came out in theaters. My dad was 10. The movie theater sent him home. The movie theater would not let him in to go see this film. So what did my grandmother do? Take him home? No, she made him walk home and she stayed to see the film. So this has been one that's lived in infamy that I've never watched. And I watched this today and I'm so glad somebody mentioned it because it was pushing and pulling and it almost made its way on my list. Because again, I was so, so, so moved. I spent that last 15, 20 minutes again in just 
tears, which is a struggle when you're trying to work in your day job while you're watching this film. But the bond in the film between these two characters was really what I honed into. I keep touching back on it, but I get the awareness, the hyper awareness, Poitiers' ability to bring across the screen that, yeah, this is this is what we're having to deal with. I face this every day and I see this coming at you and I'm going to help you through, I'm going to teach you to do this in a way that nobody has taught you to. And I just, I was bowled over by everything by it. And I was incredibly moved and Shelley Winters was, wow. I had no idea that movie was going to be as rough as it was. That was a dark, 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 dark viewing that I was not expecting, but it was an experience. Classic Shelly. <laughs> My sister still has not seen it, even though I've urged her to. I always preface it with you have to be in the mindset to watch something dark and rough and sad, and she never is. So I was, I was going it into off. it. I'm like, it's gonna be saccharine. It's like, what'd you just say, Shelly? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We did yeah. what to the girl? Not not just the racism, but there are so many different touchy subjects that are dealt very, with. Very in that touchy. Home. Yeah, for sure. All right. So moving on to Kim, what's your number one? We get to talk about Paris Blues. Yeah. <laughs> Which I will say thank you to every person who has tweeted me about trying to go find a copy of Paris Blues. It's amazing that it's been available. You, If you have a library card, you can get it through Hoopla. It's been airing on Pluto TV for free. So there are ways to watch it for free. You should. So this one, I mentioned emotional view, but I was that was right after I mixed up my list. I had to put this one on because it just scratched every itch that I needed to have scratched when I watched this after we recorded the new discoveries episode. I was like, I had to watch this one. And from Sydney to Paul Newman to Woodward and Diane Carroll, this was the perfect blend of people. But I have to take things fluffy here for a second. Watching this, Diane Carroll and Paul Newman, that should have been a thing because those two had chemistry. I think the first time she sees him, there is a look and it's like, wow, she said absolutely nothing, but she said so much all at once. This film looks gorgeous. That's some of the most beautiful shooting I think I've seen this year. The use of the Paris landscape is absolutely perfect. Paul Newman speaks for himself. Joanne Woodward. I mean, these are perfect, pitch-perfect performances from everybody. And once again, I keep hitting the same drum about Poitiers, but he's flawless in this one again. He's such a centering presence for the narrative that I actually really liked. And I really appreciated that because Newman is Newman and he's pretty and he's that jazz musician, but he needs a grown up to hang out with him. And Sidney Poitier was that grown up. And gosh, him and Diane Carroll were perfect together. Yeah, this was on my new discoveries list. It was my number two. And I think I put it as lower on my list purely because it's such a strong ensemble. I don't necessarily think it's Poitier's picture. He is one of four very beautiful people all doing A-list work. There is not a weak, weak person in the bunch, which I think is a testament to all four of these performers being consummate professionals. But, you know, I've thought about it. And I do think that as much as I love the concept of Paul Newman and Diane Carroll, I think that Sidney Poitier and Diane Carroll just come on. There was so much sexiness and power to them. Oh, there was. As, there was. As these two beautiful people in Paris. And I think what I really love, outside of the fact that Sidney Poitier and Diane Carroll were actually in a longstanding relationship for several years after this movie was made, Google it. It was a really, really, really contentious relationship that ended in divorces not Sydney's. A lot of other things happened, but Diane Carroll talks a lot about their relationship and her biography. But I think what I appreciate is that Diane Carroll's Connie is telling him that she wants to start this life with him. She wants it to be in America. And his character, Eddie, says, in Europe, I can be my own man. You know, again, it goes back to what we said about his character and guess who's coming to dinner. He so desperately wanted to sell himself 
as a man, not a black man. And I think that what the script of Paris Blues gets is without saying anything specific, the fact that this is a spoiler. So I'm going to say fast forward, maybe about 10 minutes, if you don't want to know the end of Paris Blues. But the fact that he is the one that goes back to America and not Paul Newman is this acknowledgement that he's willing to go back to this country and make a go of it, Black man or not. You know, it's that blending of the two dichotomies. I think a lot of Sidney Poitier's films was his struggle to say, don't see me as a Black man, see me as a man. And that, again, was very contentious for certain Black audiences who said, like, no, dude, you're a Black man. Like, own that. Like, you shouldn't hide that. And I think that at the end of Paris Blues, at least, him going back to America is somewhat of an acknowledgement. It's not a grand gesture, but the fact that he's willing to do it for her and he's willing to engage in this relationship and start lay down roots with a woman in America, I think does a lot towards trying to build that bridge between the two halves that Sidney Poitier as an actor created. I just have to say, I still haven't seen this movie. (laughs) But if we come around and we roll around to 2023 and this isn't in my top three, I will be very surprised at myself. (laughs) I will definitely catch it sometime this year. Before he even passed, I had a goal to work on completing his filmography this year. I've been talking about him a lot this year. I've been thinking about it. I think I had a feeling that he was going to pass and I don't know why. It's weird. But that is the movie that I'm going to start with because I have heard so many good things. I've seen the gorgeous screenshots. They both look amazing. They all look amazing. I need to see it. Everything about that movie is just beautifully, beautifully, gorgeously flawless. Sexy and beautiful. It's so sexy. It's so, so, so sexy. Kristen, going to what you were saying, in terms of that pairing, it's so poignant too, because she speaks so eloquently about everything that's going on in America that he is trying to ignore. He's living his life. He's trying to exist. She's very hyper aware and she she torpedoes every one of his BS that he and he, she makes him face up to some things. And it's truly, those are a gorgeous pair together. And it's the script, the direction, the performances, everything complements each other so well. All right, Kristen, take us home with your number one. Okay, so my number one is the film that he should have gotten an Oscar for, and he didn't, and that's a whole other can of worms. It's 1967's In the Heat of the Night. I am a big fan of In the Heat of the Night. It's been a while since I've seen it, and I'm excited that TCM's going to air it so that I can rewatch it again, because I think that we would not have Law and Order or any of those crime procedurals without something like In the Heat of the Night, directed by Norman Jewison. This was 1967, 1968 Academy Awards, so it did win the Best Picture that year. And 1968 Oscars are really interesting because they're a mix of the old established studio system, big budget family films like Dr. Doolittle, and independently financed productions made by these auteurs that were bucking the production code. And in there is In the Heat of the Night, which is kind of a nice blend of the two. And I think it's such a fascinating movie. It's about a man is murdered in a small town in Mississippi. Sidney Poitier plays Detective Virgil Tibbs, and he is forced to work with the racist police led by Chief Gillespie, played by Rod Steiger, and they have to work together. It's that old chestnut of racist white cop teams up with young black liberal cop to solve a murder and like things have to change. And it's a landmark for so many reasons. It was the first time a major Hollywood production funded by a studio tackled racism. And in the bloodiest year for the struggle of civil rights, you know, which is just shocking. But it was nominated for seven Oscars. It won five. And it won Best Actor for Rod Steiger, the white man. I the did f- not know that. And I am angry. <laughs> <laughs> and Poitier wasn't even nominated. He wasn't what? even nominated. He's the star of the freaking movie. So mad. He's the star of the movie. You know who's on the box? 
Sidney Poitier, you know who's not on the box? The white guy that won the Oscar. It still boggles my mind because if you ask, and I've asked people, you know, oh, Sidney Poitier, what did he win the Oscar for? And people will say in the heat of the night, and I have to be like, oh, no, he didn't win, and he wasn't even nominated. And people just right. like, they're like, "Are you, is that incorrect? No, it's not. It's correct. This was the year Dr. Doolittle. Rex Ken Harrison was nominated, but not Sidney Poitier. I'm just saying. I love you, Kristen. I'm just saying. <laughs> Rex. I know you're dead, I'm but looking, I don't care. I'm looking <laughs> at the nominations. To hit that nail twice on the head, Spencer Tracy for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner as well. I wouldn't right. was I also nominated. Yeah, I don't know if I would call him the best actor in there either. Because why not? Supporting. Because that's that was a petty me. Oscar because he passed away. Touche. Touche. Yeah. But... Um, it's just, it's shocking to me. It's just shocking to me. It's such an intense movie where you're watching this powder keg that's just ready to explode in this small town and Virgil Tibbs comes in reluctantly. The running joke in the movie is that he's trying to get out of this town because he understands he is a black man in Mississippi. He does not need to be here. It's not just a really great, strong murder mystery but it's such a searing indictment of racism, the casualness of it. You know, everybody, I think, has shared the gif of him backhanding the white guy who's racist to him. But there are little moments like leading up to that. He goes to visit that racist white guy who runs a cotton plantation. And he can't figure out that in 1967, there are still black people picking cotton to make money. Like he's shocked by that as a black man living outside of the South. It's a perfect, perfect movie. You can watch it as a discussion of social commentary. You can watch it as a piece of entertainment. It's got great performances. Lee Grant is great in it. She's really good. It still irks me, though, that they turned this into a TV show, a long-running television show. And, you know, if you ask people who was the star of In the Heat of the Night, the TV show, you know what they're going to say? Carol O'Connor, the white guy. Carol O'Connor. The police chief. Yep. I just want to throw in a little story. I have not seen this movie for years. I really need to see it again. I believe I will make a note to see it when they do Sydney's 24-hour marathon. I hope it's on the schedule. If it's not, I'm going to have some problems. But (laughs) I'm going to make a note to see it. The last time that I saw it was years ago. And I'll be honest, my mom has a little bit of inherent racism in her. And I was watching a scene from this film and my mom walks up and it's Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger on screen. And I say, he's so hot. And she says, Rod Steiger. (laughs) I just looked at her like, are you serious? (laughs) Yeah. So I'll never forget that story when it comes to oh, the mother. Of the night. Yeah, yeah. Going back to that Oscars discussion, I just want to point out, guess what movie was on none of our lists? Lilies of the Field. I've not you seen that. I'll that admit way. that. It, it, was, was, um, it was cute. I, that was one of the first ones I dove into. And I had it built up, but it was fine. I have seen many Who doesn't like movies. And this kind of goes hand in hand with like Humphrey Bogart, where I think he won the Oscar for his least great film, in my opinion. Or I did not need to spend two hours to see him building a church. I think we're good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with that being said, are there any honorable mentions, movies that almost made the list that you want to chill for? I personally would like to throw out two of Sidney Poitier's older roles where he was a bit older. He wasn't young, hot stud, although he was always good looking. He was a dad by this point. He played a lot of wizened, older mentor figures. 1988's Little Nikita, directed by Richard Benjamin of all people. This is uh, one of, I think, two River Phoenix movies where he played a secret underground character here. His parents are like Soviet sleeper agents. And he is their American-born son who has to deal with the fact that he is a commie. And Sidney Poitier is the detective that's trying to get him to turn. It's entertaining. It's not going to break any, you know, records or anything like that, but it's a fun film. And the other one from 1992, Sneakers. There's a lot of sneakers love on social media. Sneakers is an all-star cast. You got Robert Redford and Sidney Poitier. Like, what? 
Dan Aykroyd, my beloved David Strahan, River Phoenix again, Mary McDonald's in there, I think. Robert Redford plays a security analyst who's got shady stuff in his past and he's got a team of people that are all realized that there's some stuff from the past that's going to screw them over. So it's kind of like a heist film. And, and Sidney Poitier is Robert Redford's right-hand man. And it's just great to get to watch two actors of the 1960s kind of playing around having a lot of fun together. And it's, again, a very fun action buddy film. So those are two that I would definitely recommend off the beaten path that you check out. What about you, Kim? As I mentioned, a patch of blue, really close to making my list. In the heat of the night, I have to echo the love for that. I have not seen that in probably 15 years. That's one that's needed a rewatch. I remember absolutely being bowled over by it. One of his very early films, but I would listen if I did not mention it, Blackboard Jungle. Like I said, my introduction to his work uh, while I was deep, deep, deep in some Glenn Ford research. And it's Blackboard Jungle. It's a film of the 50s, but it's it's iconic in its own way. And he's great in it. He's such an amazing present. Once again, like we were just saying, six years after No Way Out, he was playing a high schooler. And... It's a rough film. It's not an easy film, especially, you know, when you're going into there with Bill Haley and the Comets and the plucky teacher at the rough school has been a trope in Hollywood for as long as we can remember. And that was one of those places where it really started. And you've got incredible performances by him, Vic Morrow, a performer who doesn't get nearly the love he deserves. I mean, Glenn Ford, of course. That would have made my list before this rewatch started, but I've been so deep into the rewatch that it just got pushed out but I have to give it a little love those are all great picks honestly I feel like we did a really great job covering a lot of his essentials in our list I'm very proud of us if I had to throw out more I think the biggest one that didn't appear on our list would be to sir with love that's definitely a great film talking about the origin of like the teacher movie I think that's a great one that um, had Lulu living rent-free in my head for about a week and a half. That song was- It's infectious. You can't Darn loop. <laughs> Other than that, I would say definitely check out some of his directorial films. A Warm December, Buck and the Preacher, even Stir Crazy, which I don't think he's even in, but he directed it. And then my other recommendation, it's a little bit obscure, but I think you guys would like it. It's called Free of Eden. It's from 1998. It's a TV movie in which he educates a poor Black girl to elevate her from her status. And the daughter is played by his own daughter, Sydney Tamika Poitier. So it's a really, really cute one. I loved it when I watched it. It's been a while, but I would see that again anytime. So those are my recommendations. Well, listeners, let us know your thoughts on Sydney Poitier. Maybe there's a movie we missed. Maybe we should have ranked something higher. You can email your thoughts to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com, or you can tweet them to us at ticklish underscore biz. We are on all the social medias, including Instagram, you search ticklishbiz, and we have our shiny website, ticklishbiz.com, which has all sorts of written content. Right now, you can read our interview with Ed Asner that we did last year before his passing. We're going to have some great other interviews with some other stars, both dearly departed and otherwise. There's also going to be a great review of the new Lucy and Desi documentary out of Sundance. So definitely head over there. You can also support us via Patreon at patreon.com slash for just a dollar. You get access to bonus shows. We did a whole episode talking about being the Ricardos. We have some Ticklish Biz After Dark content coming your way. All of that's exclusive to our Patreon supporters who help us keep the lights on at Ticklish Biz HQ. But we will be back with a new episode in two weeks. Till then. Bye.